Good morning. I'm Tony LaRose, and today's scripture reading will be from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Jesus, this morning we have sung about how much we love you and how we resign all the follies of sin and choose you instead. Father, that is definitely our intention, but you know how strongly sin uh, pulls at us. So we pray that this morning, as we open your word, you would enlarge our vision of your glory, of your son's glory, and that through your spirit, you would stoke the, the flame of joy in us so deep that sin will lose all of its luster and we can follow wholeheartedly your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, So let me begin with a question. What 
has been the worst day of your life. Maybe it was a diagnosis. Maybe it was a phone call letting you know of a passing of a loved one. Uh, For me, I remember the worst day of my life was when my oldest son was about two years old, maybe a little younger than that. Uh, He started having seizures uh, on a Sunday morning. And we had to take him by ambulance to a children's hospital in Pittsburgh. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time. Uh, And he ended up having six, seven, maybe eight seizures that day. That was a horrible day. Now, luckily, it was just because of a virus in his body, and there was no lasting repercussions. But at the time, it felt like a horrible day. Uh, Another question What's the best day of your life? Maybe it was passing your entrance exams. Maybe it was getting married. Maybe it was the birth of your kids. I'm married. I've got three kids. I don't know how I'd rank them. (laughs) At least publicly. Uh, Okay, your best day, your worst day. Now imagine... That's the same day. I think a little bit that gives us some insight into what the disciples were experiencing on this day in this story that Luke tells us. It's Easter Sunday, but later in the day. And these disciples are in the throes of grief, deep grief. The master that they love, he's been crucified and he's dead. That's how they start their day. But it ends magnificently because they witness the resurrected Jesus. Between the services, I don't know how many people, it was probably half a dozen people came up to me and told me this is their favorite story in the Gospels. And I can see why. This is a great, great story. This morning I've broken it down into three chapters to kind of give us bite-sized pieces of it to think about and to learn from. And the first chapter of this story, I'm just calling failing. Again, this is Easter Sunday, and the disciples are on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a no-name, well, it's it's got a name, it's Emmaus. Uh, It's a podunk little town that we don't even know where it's at anymore. No archaeological records of Emmaus. But it was a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're on the road, these two disciples. Uh, These two disciples weren't a part of the inner circle. They're not part of the 12. They're a part of that larger circle of disciples, the 70. And as they're walking down the road, they're discussing everything that has happened in Jerusalem these last few days. I'm sure they're reminiscing about Jesus' teachings and what really struck a chord with them. On some of the miracles they had seen Jesus perform, the healings, the casting out of demons. They're certainly talking about his betrayal. How could one of his disciples hand him over to be crucified? And they're talking about the trial where Jesus' own people say, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. Crucify Jesus. And they're talking about the crucifixion and all the signs that had surrounded that event, the darkness and the earthquake and 
And they're talking also about the, the mysterious, puzzling reports that are coming back that the tomb is empty. They don't know where the body is. And as they're having this discussion, some translations say argument, Jesus kind of joins them. Just, you know, steps in line and starts walking down the road with them and says, what is it you're talking about? And the way the text reads, they were stopped dead in their tracks. They're walking to Emmaus, but now they stand still and their faces are downcast. Here we get the name of one of the disciples. His name is Cleopas. Church history in the historian Eusebius tells us the other one was named Simon. And Simon becomes the second bishop of Jerusalem who was later martyred. But, but Cleopas says to Jesus, are you the only one who's been visiting Jerusalem and doesn't know about the things that have been happening? There is a delicious irony in that, isn't there? Are you the only one who doesn't know about Jesus? Jesus? <laughs> it's beautiful irony. And I hear in those words from Cleopas, if I'm honest, an echo of some of my prayers. Jesus, do you even know what's happening in my life right now? Jesus, do you know what's happening in the world? And of course he knows. He knows better than we do. He knows all. But Cleopas goes on to retell the story. Jesus says, well, what things? And Cleopas goes on to retell the story. Some commentators refer to this section as Cleopas's gospel. And it reads almost like an early creed. A, a, an unfinished early creed, maybe. He gets so much right, he says, oh, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and men. We had hoped he was going to be the one that would redeem Israel. But the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified. And he died, and, and now it's three days later. And some women have amazed us. In other words, it's unbelievable what they're saying. That they went to the tomb, but it's empty. We don't know where the body is at. He's retelling this story, and it's almost as if he's heard the joke, the punchline, but he just doesn't get it. You think, you're so close, Cleopas. Look again at his words here. He says, it's now the third day. And you want to say, and? You know, what did Jesus say was going to happen on the third day? And he says, and the tomb was empty, and we don't know where his body is. And you want to say, huh, where could Jesus be? You know, he's right there walking with you. But their eyes had been kept from seeing Jesus. How? Why? Uh, was it simply they were blinded by their grief? Too grief-struck to see what was right there? Blinded by their unbelief? I mean, resurrection wasn't a normal part of life even in the first century. It wasn't a part of their plausibility structures. So it's not like 
They expected it. Or were they kept from recognizing by an act of God so that the unveiling of Jesus later would be all the more sweet? We don't know, but they're so close. They're so close. Uh, Augustine zooms in on a phrase in verse 20. They said, we had hoped that he would be the one that redeemed would redeem Israel. And Augustine puts them, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, in conversation with the thief on the cross. And he says, he writes in a sermon, but we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And Augustine writes, oh my dear disciples, you had hoped? Now you don't hope? Come here, robber. Give the disciples a lesson. Why have you given up hope? Just because you have seen him crucified? Because you've looked at him hanging on the cross? Because you have thought him weak? He was like that for the the robber, too. Hanging on the tree beside him. The robber was sharing in his punishment, but believed straight away and acknowledged him. While you, on the other hand, have forgot that he is the author of life. Cry out, robber! From the cross, you, a criminal, win over the disciples. What did they say? We had hoped. What do you, a thief, say? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's cool. The disciples, their failure on the road here is because they don't recognize Jesus, but also because they forgot who he was, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who is the author of life. They're still stuck on Saturday with Jesus in a cold, damp tomb. But now it's Sunday, the third day, resurrection day. See, we live in light of the third day. Because Christ is risen, we should never say we had hoped or we've lost hope. We always, because Christ is risen, have hope. Now, I understand that we have all had hopes that have failed. Maybe you say to yourself, I had hoped I'd be in a different place in my career at this point. Or I had hoped to be married at this point. Or I had hoped to have kids. Or I had hoped to leave my mark on the world at this point. And I understand those those disappointments are real. But they're relativized in light of the true abiding hope we have because Christ is risen. We live with the hope of Christ's resurrection and what that means for us. It's more than just a hope so, a wish, a desire that is uncertain. I hope I get a nap this afternoon. I probably won't. But I want it. When we say we have hope in Jesus, it is not that wish, desire that might not come true. It is a firm certainty. Because he is risen, we too shall live. Jesus said in John 14, because I live you too shall live. 
And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.14, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus to bring us with you into his presence. Not we wish, not we hope so, we know. Because this happened, Easter, we too shall live and be brought into God's presence with Jesus, who is the author of all joy. That is our hope. We live in light of that. The disciples, chapter 1, failed to recognize Jesus, failed to live in light of the hope of resurrection Sunday. I will cut them tremendous amounts of slack because I would have failed too. But chapter 2 begins with some master teaching. I don't know, what's the best class you have ever taken? I can look back through you know, my academic career, 10th grade social studies with Mr. Barna. He was a crusty old Korean war vet who was sarcastic and mean-spirited, but man, I learned how to think with Mr. Barna. Taught me how to ask hard questions. Uh, in college, senior seminar on political thought. Loved that class. In seminary, a, a class on the doctrine of union with Christ just taught me to read the Bible in a different way and think about things differently. I loved it. I would trade all of those classes in every degree to sit with Jesus for this class. A three-hour class on biblical theology where he goes through the Bible and he shows you where he is on every page. The lesson that he teaches the disciples on the road to Emmaus begins with kind of a, a remedial lesson. Things they should have known but obviously don't. He says, how foolish and slow to believe you are. You should have believed the prophets. You should know these things. Their ignorance is a a culpable ignorance. Because Jesus himself had taught them these things. They should have believed and trusted him when he taught about his death and his resurrection. But they didn't. And so he calls them slow or silly. Fool, I'm sorry, foolish, silly, and slow to believe. That the Messiah had to suffer these things to enter his glory. William Penn, who is, you know, Pennsylvania is named after William Penn wrote a book called No Cross, No Crown. It's a reminder, it's a great book, a reminder that the path to the crown went for Jesus through the cross. Messiah had to suffer these things to enter his glory. And it says he began to unfold for them all of scripture concerning himself, beginning with Moses And all the prophets. And this is the part that I really, really want to hear. I hope there's a recording of it when we get to heaven. Where did he go first? Genesis 3? And the promise that comes right when sin enters the garden. 
The promise that God was going to raise up a seed of Eve who would destroy the work of the serpent, crush his head. Yes, he would be wounded. He would have his heel struck. But he would prove victorious. Is that where he started? Did he go to Exodus and the Passover lamb? And how the people of Israel were safe from the wrath of God and safe from death as the angel passed through Egypt because they were under the blood of the Passover lamb? Did he go into Leviticus and explain to them the Day of Atonement and what it really meant? Explain to these Jewish disciples the Day of Atonement and what it really meant. It pointed to him, the ultimate sacrifice that would make peace with God. Did he go in and talk about temple and tabernacle Where did he go to explain? Maybe he went to Isaiah 53. By his stripes, meaning Messiah's stripes, wounds, we are healed. Did he go to Zechariah 3? Where the branch would make atonement and remove all sin in one day. These things were necessary. But that's only part. That's only half the story of Jesus. That's only half the gospel. Did he go to Genesis 22 and explain even Abraham had faith that God would raise up his son if he had to sacrifice him? Did he go to Psalm 16 where the promise is that the Holy One will not see decay? He will not be abandoned to the grave. Did he retell the story of Jonah and say three days in the belly of the fish? That means me. Three days in the earth and then raised. I, I, I want to hear this lesson. I want to know. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus, to teach these disciples about himself went to Scripture and showed them from Scripture truths about himself. Jesus could have said, this is me, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is my per." He didn't. Jesus went to Scripture. You want to know Jesus? Read the Word. Read the word looking for Jesus. Maybe that's going to have to shake up a little bit about how we evangelicals typically read our Bibles. We typically read looking for the literal, historical, grammatical, uh, you know, this is what it meant. These were the events and how they happened. And, And here's how I apply it to my life. Three steps to, five steps to. Those are all important, necessary ways to read the Bible. But read the Bible looking for Jesus. He's there. That's how you come to know him. Jesus on every every page. Where a promise isn't just a promise. Where a lamb isn't just a lamb. Where an altar isn't just an altar. Where a priest isn't just a priest. A king isn't just a king. They're meant to point us to Jesus. What a privilege that we have the same word that Jesus used to teach about himself.
You want to know Jesus? Go to the Word. The class probably lasted about three hours. It's how long it takes, to, at least for me, to walk seven miles. Maybe I'm a little slow. But at the end of the class, the disciples were left wanting more. That's the way a good teacher always leaves the students, right? Hungry for more. And as they approach Emmaus, the teaching turns into eating. They say to Jesus, you know, it's almost evening. Just stay with us. Just stay with us. And the text reads, so he stayed with them. That's a really simple sentence that maybe we just pass over. They asked, so he did. Jesus, stay with us. And so he did. Invite Jesus to be a part of your life. Make room for him in your day, in your heart. When's the last time you prayed, Jesus, just linger with me a little bit longer in prayer here. Jesus, just teach me a little bit more this morning in your word. I will confess, and I know I'm not alone. More often than not, my prayer is, okay, I got five minutes before I got to get out the door with the kids. I got time for one chapter that can check it off my list. That's the spiritual equivalent to eating your dinner over the sink, you know, getting ready to run out to the next thing. Better than nothing. But sometimes, just linger with Jesus. And as they do, Jesus is at a round table with them. And he takes bread, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks, and he gives it to him. And it says that's when they recognized Jesus. Their eyes were opened. The way this is phrased, it's in the passive voice. Not they opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened. And this moment, they recognized Jesus. Reading this, it reminds me of some of those videos I've seen of of fathers or mothers who come back from deployment and they surprise their kids. I remember seeing one that was at a Little League baseball game and there was a 10-year-old, 12-year-old maybe, uh, up at bat. And the umpire calls strike. And there's a, just a, maybe a hint of recognition. The batter turns back. And the umpire gets up and goes up and brushes off the plate and looks at the batter. And the batter's thinking, what is happening? And then the umpire takes off the mask, and it's dad. Back from Afghanistan. And the son leaps up into his dad's arms and a daughter runs out from the stands and there's this great moment at home field. There's this moment of recognition. And that's what the disciples have here. Their eyes are opened and they see Jesus. And he disappears and they think to themselves, didn't our hearts burn within us? When he was teaching us, it just had that familiar tone of affection, of authority, Didn't our hearts burn within us? 
But this moment happened as Jesus took bread and, and broke it and gave thanks and gave it to them. And the church has long seen in this an allusion to an echo of the Lord's Supper, the communion table, the bread. A lot of modern commentators are quick to point out that this wasn't a strict reenactment of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the two that were on the road to Emmaus weren't even in the upper room, so if Jesus had been reenacting it, they wouldn't have been able to connect the dots. They weren't there. And at this meal, there's no mention of wine, there's no words of institution. So it's not a strict reenactment of the Lord's Supper. But early commentators were all almost unanimous that this was told in such a way by Luke to point us to the sacrament of communion and how we see Jesus there. Augustine said, no one should doubt that this breaking of bread was the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in Luke's mind. And the way Luke tells the story, he's directing the church to where we can find and see Jesus. In the word, Jesus taught them on the way, and in the sacrament, the bread that is broken and given for us. Sacrament is important to seeing and to knowing Jesus. It's a reminder that God uses means to teach us about himself. He uses the waters of baptism. He uses bread and wine to reveal himself to us. It's not a different Jesus. We're just seeing Jesus in a different medium. It's not a different kind of grace. It's the same grace that's coming to us in a different channel when we take and eat of the bread. We're not disembodied spiritual beings. We're physical. Tactile things matter. The things of the senses matter. And God understands that and he gives us those things so that we might know him better. The visible things, bread and wine, move our affections. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, the word is a trumpet to proclaim Christ. The sacrament, a glass to represent him. Think stained glass. Things taken in by the eye do work on our affections more than the things taken in by the ear. In the sacrament, we see Christ broken before us. And Christ's body broken is the only comfort for the broken heart. It was in this moment of Jesus breaking the bread and giving it to the disciples that they see him. They recognize him and their hearts burn. And they, they leap up and they immediately go back to Jerusalem to tell the others. I think they probably sprinted. The best seven minutes ever recorded in the ancient world. They were carried on by the Spirit and by the, that joy. We have seen resurrected Jesus. It's true. And they go back and they find the disciples in that upper room, the eleven, and they tell them and they say, yeah, Simon saw him too. Our hope is true. Christ has been raised. And with a couple questions. Have you 
seen Jesus? Has your heart been strangely warmed by the preaching of Jesus, by the word of God, by the sacraments? If not, ask God to open your eyes so that you can recognize him there. That is a prayer God loves to answer. He wants us to see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, go out with joy and tell the world, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for slow disciples that we can learn from. It makes us feel better about how slow and dense we are. We know better than they do, but yet we still fail to live in the hope of the resurrection. We fail to live in light of the third day. Father, I pray that that joy would stir us, that that joy would compel us to go out and proclaim to others the good news, Jesus crucified for our sins, but raised on the third day for our justification. We have hope of eternal life with the author of all good things. Father, we pray that that love that we have for your son would compel us into acts of service for the world which he served. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.